Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time we're going back to cover the fall of WCW. It's Starcade 1999. Kyush, has any company ever fallen so far so fast as WCW did in the year 1999? I don't think you can say that they have. Like, we kind of talked about it before the show started, like some other examples of companies falling off. But you need to understand that, like, as much as we make fun of Starcade 97 and Starcade 98, they were gigantic financial successes, unparalleled, huge shows in front of huge crowds that everybody cared about or was at least interested in. By the time we get here to 1999, which is only one year later, this show is like a wet fart that no one hears. It's it's unbelievably crazy how irrelevant all of this is. The biggest thing for me is Starcade 97 and 98 were both pretty bad shows, but at least they were WCW shows and the right. company had a brand and an identity. Whereas at this point, they're just doing a really lame impersonation of the WWF. Well, here's the thing, too, is that, like, for all 97 and 98 aren't super great shows, and they do damage the company in various ways, I could at least tell you the one iconic thing that happens on both of those shows. They're important. They're memorable. Like, they have a place in wrestling history. Before I watched this show for this podcast, I couldn't have listed a single match on it. No, and for that, and this to be their biggest show of the year, that's fucking nuts. The main event here and the finish was absolutely miserable. Oh, my God. Like, it's entirely possible. Bischoff has said that this is the worst show he's ever watched, <laughs> ever in his entire life. I, li- I did also listen to the 83 weeks in pre- about this show in preparation. There are a few things I enjoy more than Eric Bischoff shitting on Vince Russo. Yeah, that's the thing. The Bischoff will never shit on his own stuff, even though he knows that he yeah. should. But this is a rare opportunity for him to shit on WCW and it not have been his fault. Yeah. But like, uh, oh, it's This was a painful get through, man. There are 13 matches on this show, and I wish I had seen none of them. Yeah, so one year before this, Kevin Nash beat Goldberg to end his streak. I mean, you can debate whether Nash should have been the guy to beat Goldberg. You can definitely quibble with the whole Scott Hall stun gun thing. But that show at least, had that was a big main event. That was a big deal. This company by this point is incapable of putting on anything even remotely that big because no one cares anymore. I mean, I have always said that one of my most controversial opinions voiced here on the Lawcast is that I think it was absolutely the right decision to have Kevin Nash beat Goldberg, that in some ways Kevin Nash was a bigger babyface star than Goldberg was at that point, and that he should have just beaten him clean. I know that not everybody feels that way, and I damn sure don't mean that I think they should have done the whole finger poke of doom stun gun bullshit. But by this point, Goldberg's dead. Nash is dead. They never built anybody else. Hogan is gone. There's nothing left. Every uh, Savage is gone. Uh, who else is gone? Uh, Bret Hart's about to leave. Bret Hart is a shell of himself. Um, Piper is pretty much finished. The Giant is gone. Jericho Fla- is gone. Flair's nowhere to be seen. Yeah, Flair's not. Flair will be back, but I, I don't I, I think the filthy animals buried Ric Flair out in the desert, if I'm remembering right. He, they literally dug a it hole was, in the desert and pushed him into it in his box yeah, of shorts. It was symbolic. <laughs> and now the company is being built around all of these, not necessarily young guys, but guys that 
Vince Russo wants to push. And that's okay because we've seen that work before because that's exactly how they rebuilt WWF is they took a bunch of guys that were seen as mid-carters, pushed the shit out of them, and then a bunch of them got over and became megastars. That does not happen here, though. I mean, Russo's vision here, like clearly he's a big Bret Hart guy. So he wants Bret Hart as the champion. He's pushing Benoit and he's pushing Jarrett and Shane Douglas and I who else? Vampiro, I think you could yeah, say he's pushing. Vampiro. Like I like Vampiro. That's a good choice. Yeah. Um David Flair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it gets thin in a hurry here. Um, it's difficult. It's not that there's no talent, but it's just difficult to see what the vision is. So Russo came in, his first pay-per-view was Halloween Havoc. Um, that night, Sting was challenging Hogan for the title. Um, Sting had turned heel on Hogan, hit him with a bat, and pinned him at Fall Brawl to win the title. Here, Hogan comes out, and he just lays down for Sting. Um, I, I'm sure there was going to be some payoff to this, but we never got to see it because there were so many you know, creative team changes that happened in the interim. Russo, I think, has explained his vision was like, basically he was going to kill off all the old guys and then have them come back together. But I don't know whether they were going to come back as the baby faces or the heels. Well, here's the thing. Like, if you kill off Hulk Hogan and then you wait nine months and bring him back, he's going to be a baby face. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. If you do the same thing with Sting, he's going to be a babyface. People don't necessarily like all of these young guys, and all the young guys are heels or better as heels. But it's also kind of a problem if you make all the babyfaces in the whole company 45+. plus. That's not a great system. So after Hogan laid down for him, Sting, like an idiot, put out an open (laughs) challenge and fucking... Goldberg answered the open challenge and beat his ass in like two minutes, which you would think would result in Goldberg winning the title. But then logic actually ensued in which like the championship committee or whoever was like, well, that wasn't an official title defense. And so Goldberg isn't the champion, but because Sting lost, he is stripped of the title. The title is held up. So this was, Russo wanted to do a tournament to crown a new champion, which I think is a good idea. If you're going to try to kickstart a new era, make some new stars, it's easy to create some new issues with a tournament. So they do a ridiculous 32-man tournament. And let me say this. like I love the idea of doing a gigantic tournament that features almost everyone in the whole company because, A, that does give you a chance to kind of reestablish the hierarchy, right? Like, These are the people who I'm pushing. Maybe in this match, uh, maybe Rick Steiner's not so hot anymore. Maybe we put one of the fresh new guys over him, and that guy's ahead of Rick Steiner now. Like, you can kind of reset the promotion with one big tournament. The thing is, you can't do it in, like, three weeks, which is what they – they have a 32-man tournament in, like, a three-week span, which is fucking insane. Half the matches, like, barely happen if they happen at all, and there are some flat-out jabronis in this tournament. (laughs) Can I read off everyone who's in Please this tournament? Please do. First round, Bret Hart beats Goldberg to win the U.S. What? title. What a fucking start. Yeah. Uh, Eddie Guerrero, Perry Saturn, Norman Smiley, Bam Bam Bigelow, 
Billy Kidman, Conan, The Total Package, Rick Steiner, DDP, David Flair, Ming, Medusa. Ming versus Medusa is a match that actually happened on Nitro. That's fucking wild. But I will say, like, for that first bracket there, those are all people that I would say should be involved in this. I'm all good with that. Well, maybe not. Yeah. (laughs) Brian Nobbs. Brian Nobbs. Who knew he still worked here? (laughs) Chris Benoit versus Dean Malenko in the first round. Love that. Laparka versus Evan Courageous. Okay. (laughs) What what happens in that match? Because in the next round, they both get replaced with Medusa again. Somehow... Somehow Medusa got another spot in the tournament. I, I think that had to do with her storyline with Evan Courageous. I mean, that's fine. I wish Medusa had gone to, like, the semifinals. Fuck it. That would have been a great story. Uh, Scott Hall versus Sid Vicious. Again, Ooh. fuck yeah. But, like, Sid loses. Yeah. Sid should have won this shit. Sid. He rules the world. Yeah. Uh, Ernest Miller versus Lash LaRue. Ooh. Lash LaRue Buff. needs to not be here. Lash LaRue wins that match. Uh, Buff Fuck Bagwell off. versus Stevie Ray. Yeah, that doesn't need to happen. Vampiro versus Berlin. At least Vampiro goes over. Yeah. Disco Inferno versus Kurt Hennig. Versus the ghost of Kurt Hennig. And Booker T versus Jeff Jarrett. And this is sort of what I'm talking about. Like, this whole thing could have been... You could have come through this with a couple of narratives, right? You could have had Sid just rampage his way to the win, right? You could have had it all be about, like, the two big next guys, Booker T and Chris Benoit or something like that, and then they could have met in the finals. Instead, what you get is just kind of a eh tournament where a bunch of... By the time you get to the semifinals, the only person who's in it who hasn't already been an established star for 50 years is, like, Billy Kidman. It's very strange. It comes down to the final four is Bret Hart, Benoit, Jarrett, and Sting at the November pay-per-view mayhem. Benoit beats Jarrett, Hart beats Sting. So the finals is Benoit versus Hart, which is the pay-per-view was in Toronto. So hot match to have in Canada there. I think that was WSW's first ever pay-per-view in Canada, if I'm remembering correctly. I mean, that makes sense. And I, and I will say, that's a, that's a, a very... It's not the match that you wish that it was, but it's still a good match. Like, I'm not going to shit on that. Like, it's 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 good. Marred by the ridiculous number of people who interfere in it. Right. That's the kind of match. It's Russo booking. It's what happens. That's the thing is that, like, if you're a new booker, it helps to, like, let's put on this fan friendly match that everyone will like. Just give them 25 minutes just to build credibility with the fan base. Right. Like, occasionally I will deliver something pure and untainted. What do you think of putting the belt on Brad at this point? I don't hate it. I know that he's pretty checked out, but like he's a name and it's not just Goldberg again. Like the yeah. belt on Brad is still pretty fresh because he hasn't really had a run with it. No, he has not been champion before this. And right. you know, he's coming. I mean, he's just come back from his long absence after Owen died. So like, it's a really nice feel good story. <laughs> him to become champion before he can totally fuck all the fans over and betray them of course oh yeah that's the thing it's obviously i would not turn him heel 
And like as a pure babyface champion, he can help rebuild some of that goodwill with the fans. And like the second you put the belt on Brett, though, at this point, you need to have your plan for like, all right, this is who I'm going to build to take in it off of him. Like, who's the next big heel champion for you? You need to Jeff start. Building, yeah, you, uh. <laughs> Unfortunately, that probably would be the answer. But like. Find someone who loves you like Vince Russo loves Jeff Jarrett. It's insane. And now that we've heard Jeff Jarrett on his podcast being like, I don't really know or like Vince Russo that much. <laughs> he just fucking marks out for me. I that don't know. That is so like, Jeff Jarrett is such a carny, but even with Russo, he's just like, yeah, I don't know. We're, we're fine. I guess we're cool, but we don't hang out or anything. Yeah, what a revelation that was for him to be like, I don't really know why he loves me so much. I just took advantage of it for years. <laughs> Yeah, like he was just my meal ticket all these years. Fucking hell. So the main event here is going to be Hart defending against Goldberg. That is a big, cool match, I it will is. say. It's like, like that's intriguing. It's never happened. You don't know what's going to happen. Goldberg feels like he's on the brink of a heel turn. Like something oh, yeah. feels up with Goldberg. The fans are sick of Goldberg at this point. He's been winning too much for too long. But a Goldberg heel run where he's just this dominant fucking asshole could have been yeah. something like that's yeah. a character that you can build like Booker T or Benoit up for it. It always seemed to me like the natural evolution of Goldberg was once he got the belt for him to hold it for a while and then turn heel because it would just happen kind of naturally with him winning so much. Yeah. People would just get sick of him and then he could just be like, well, fuck you. The fans abandoned me. I don't need you pieces of shit. Yeah. Maybe, like, start sneaking and cheating here and there, and that drives people crazy. But so, you just got to pick a guy. Like, none of these guys are going to be the guy a year from now. You need to pick someone, whether it's Benoit or Booker T or, like, whoever it is, that's going to be the guy, and you're going to spend the next year making that person the guy. The, I mean, the best guy they've got. It's either Booker or Scott Steiner, and Steiner's not booked here, and I, he must be injured because I don't know why else he doesn't have a match here. Well, that's the thing. I think I probably would have built, kept the belt on Brett for a while and then, like, built Steiner up to take it off him and yeah, then just had, like, a long, sense. huge Steiner reign, which Booker T would have eventually ended. Um, Hart and Goldberg are both faces so it's a you know face versus face respect match they win the tag titles together on the way in that's a russo special yeah, if Jesus i've ever Christ. seen one that's like right out of the fucking playbook and then they lost them to the outsiders after hart was attacked backstage before the match and was unable to compete or was he yeah uh, some of the other big matches we're going to see tonight. Kevin Nash versus Sid in a powerbomb match. Hell a match, yeah. A match delivered straight out of my dream journal. Hell fucking yeah. yeah. Uh, Chris Benoit versus Scott Hall for the U.S. title in a ladder match. Except not really, because Scott yeah. Hall's injured. <laughs> I feel like we've done more shows where Scott Hall wasn't on than ones that he was. <laughs> Substitutions at Starcade, a time-honored tradition. Jesus. And Lex Luger versus Sting, where if Sting wins, Elizabeth is free from Lex Luger. I love the implications there. Like, 
Lex, it's obvious that they are portraying Elizabeth as like an abused woman in a horrible, damaging relationship, which, whether it's beknownst to Vince Russo or not, is the real life situation. Yes, uh, would have been good in real life if Elizabeth could have been free from Lex Luger, but that did not happen. And I guarantee you that at some point Sting probably did something to the effect of trying to convince Lex Luger to stop abusing Liz, which makes this all very fucking meta. If you don't know, people at home, Liz would die pretty soon after this. After being uh, overdosing on drugs and, and I'm doing air quotes, falling down the stairs. (laughs) So it's a Vince Russo show. Like literally, we'll go over all the stipulations here, but like literally every match has a stipulation. There's think, a lot of nonsense bullshit going on here. Is there one straight up match on this show? I don't think there is. I think Vampiro versus Steve Williams. Well, no, because nope. that's you get it. You get Oklahoma for five minutes. Medu- Medusa versus Evan Courageous. But yeah, there you go. Gender match, which is a gimmick. And they're like the tag match is just a straight up tag match. So well, but there's a pretty elaborate storyline there. And I, I'm really excited to talk about that, actually, because I kind of love it, honestly. <laughs> that ma- that match was shockingly good. Okay, so to get into the show, it's Sunday, December 19th, 1999. We are at the MCI Center in Washington, D.C. It's like maybe two-thirds full with paper. There's uh, the attendance, 11,799, like 8,500 paid for a $362,000 gate. Not bad, but like way down from the previous couple of years where they sold the place out. It's interesting and it kind of says something that like the gate isn't bad, but like the pay-per-view buys are so trash. Oh, which wretched. Which is such a, a sign that like the pay-per-view buys go first, because, always, because that's just an indication that people aren't willing to pay lots of money if they didn't want to, if they weren't big fans in the first place. And then the gate attendance is going to fall later. But, like, yeah, we're right in the middle of people being like, nah, fuck this company. The buy rate, 0.23 for 145,000 buys. They're back to, like, Hogan Booty Man territory. What was the buy rate for the last arcade? The last one did 460,000 for Goldberg versus Nash. That might be the biggest like one year drop I've ever seen. Yeah, we were making such a big deal in the last Starcade that we covered because they jumped up 130,000 buys or something. They just dropped 300,000 buys. Yeah. I've like, never the, heard of that. This show was probably still profitable, but man, what a fall. Like Hulk Hogan would have made like negative money if he had been on this show because of how much under the expected gross that they would have done. On commentary, Tony Schiavone, Scott Hudson, and Bobby Heenan. What'd you think? Heenan totally checked out. Schiavone pretty checked out. Hudson was really trying. I not he's okay. I'm not the biggest fan. Here's the thing. Heenan, I had no idea he was still with the company this no, late. He does not fit. Yeah, he when I heard his voice, I was era. so and he's trying to do his usual stick, but there's nothing to riff on. And he obviously yeah. doesn't care. <laughs> and Shivani, oh, he's a shell of his former self here. Yeah. You can you can tell 
just looking at Heenan and Shivani because they're dressed like it's a they're going to like a fucking steakhouse. Like it, they are not dressed for Starcade. No, no tuxedos here. Like they don't give a shit. And Scott Hudson, bless his heart, he comes from like the Tom Phillips, Josh Matthews school of announcing, which is Great to say voice. he has yeah. absolutely no personality, but he's perfectly competent at his job. And Russo's clearly producing him to be, like, the insider guy and make lots of, like, shooty, smart comments. I don't understand why Mike Tanay is still there. Yeah. But they've got him doing Gene's job when he should be in the—they should have probably just replaced Tony with Tanay at this point. Yeah. Tanay is doing, like, backstage interviews, which isn't really his—I mean, no. he's fine at it. If it's not now, he like he's an analyst, but Russo has no interest in having an analyst out there like he doesn't care about wrestling matches, which is a shame because what you really need when you're doing like a new era type thing is like a new announcer is a good idea. They can just kind of like change the voice of the promotion in a different perspective. And today, the one thing you got to give him credit for from his time in TNA is he never stopped sounding completely excited about what was going on, no matter how shitty it got. Yeah. And you need that. Yeah, at this point you do. Um, I loved this opening promo, which ran through every single match and the stipulation. Yep, because Russo wants you to know all the hard work he put into this. Just going on and on. Vampiro versus Steve Williams. If Vampiro wins, he gets five minutes with Oklahoma. Sting versus Lex Luger. If Sting wins, Elizabeth is free from Lex Luger. Like, every single match has a stipulation they have to explain here. Yeah, because Vince Russo in his heart of hearts never believes that anyone would ever watch wrestling for wrestling's sake. Wrestling is a means to an end. He does not give a shit. And this was weird. Then they show, like, the signature, and then they do another video package that, like, yeah. focuses on the top matches and tells the stories. That was weird, right? We, did, I, we didn't need two video packages to open the show. One would have been good enough. You could have shown either of these, and it would have been fine. I mean, they really could have put on 100 video packages to begin the show, because it's not like any of the matches were so important that I'm eager to get to them. But, yeah, it, it was a weird choice. Opening match! Disco Inferno and Lash LaRue versus Big Vito and Johnny the Ball. Yeah. The story. Disco owes money to the mob and Johnny and Vito <laughs> are here to collect. Can I just say, I just want to talk about this because they create this character of Tony Marinara. Yeah. Which, of course, his name is Tony Marinara. But, like, he's this entitled mob boss's son. Yeah. Who, like, gets into trouble and is constantly talking shit and having his heavies back it up. He's like the shitty little son from every mob movie, but I love that character. character. Yes. What a heat (laughs) character that is. Yeah. It's actually a very good idea. I don't remember if this guy was actually a good performer or not. He was. He looks Tony Mamaluke from the FBI. Oh shit. That's Tony Mamaluke. That's right. Yeah. He was phenomenal. That's genius. And he has this like, he even has like the perfect physique because he's like very oh, yeah. muscular, but he's tiny as shit. So like Vito yeah. and Johnny the Bull look like gigantic assholes next to him. And so they look Vito, like... yeah, Vito, ahead. of course, is great. 
Johnny the Bull, they pulled right out of the power plant. Like he clearly had all the potential in the world here, and nothing ever, mu- nothing much ever came of him. I mean, he clearly has the best look on this show. Like he is built for days. Yeah, and like and he's doing shit like jumping up to the top rope from the ring. Well, he's the guy who is eventually. He's the guy who's like, I'm going to start doing crazy leg drops. And at one point, he does a running springboard leg drop to the floor and breaks his tailbone. Yeah, that's the logical conclusion there. Yeah. But still, just look-wise, Vito and Johnny the Bull look awesome. And, like, them backing up this little shit-talking dickhead, Tony Marinara, is a perfect setup. You could have made a lot of money with this group. And then this match turns out to be shockingly good. Shockingly good. Yeah. Like good work all around here. Crowd is pretty into it. Can you explain to me why Big Vito never gets a real shot with any promotion? I don't Cause, know. Cause Remember cause how who? over he was doing the dress thing in WWE? Yeah, they gave that to him as a punishment. If this is something that you guys at home don't over. know. Yeah, there was a point where they just, I don't even remember why, but they were just like mad at Vito. So they gave him a gimmick where he had to dress up in, in a dress. And then he like started to like get into it and he really put his all into the character yeah. of being like this tough bastard who happened to wear a dress. And within like three weeks, he was the most over baby face in the promotion. Yeah. And then they buried him because they did not yeah. want that. No. They're like, no, that's not, that's not what was supposed to happen here. You were supposed to get buried. <laughs> Uh, the heels control most of the match. Vito misses a splash, and Disco can tag out to LaRue. Johnny the Bull, from the ring flat-footed, jumps up to the top rope and, like, springs off into a spinning leg drop. Christ. This is, this is like some Shelton Benjamin shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, Disco hits a splash, but Vito comes in with a splash on top of him to break the pin up. Disco gets confused and he accidentally hits the last dance on LaRue and then Vito gets the pin with a DDT. Uh, Tony Marinara pulls out a body bag, um, knocks Disco out with chloroform, and then they put him in the body bag and like carry him to the back and throw him in the trunk of a car and drive off. This rules. (laughs) Especially... The modern, the, the WCW that we have here, you can absolutely believe that every single person in the company owes money to the mob. <laughs> yeah, these guys all gambling too much. Like, you could have gone so many different ways with this. But yeah, this is good. And Tony Mama does all these. Disco bet all his money on Hogan to win the belt back at Halloween Havoc <laughs> and, to, and, to, and to go the distance on the time. And he got fucked when Hogan laid down. Doesn't that seem like something Russo would have loved to put on TV? <laughs> is that like the wrestlers are yes. gambling on the matches, even though they're fixed? Like, and they're yes. like shaking down Russo to find out what the results are in advance. <laughs> I mean, I do remember that one time when Benoit and Lesnar were wrestling on SmackDown and they showed the FBI taking bets on the match backstage. That, that kicks ass. I love that. All the wrestlers are gambling and an a train comes in. He's like, I got 10 grand. Like, okay, 10 grand on Lesnar. He goes, no, 10 grand on Benoit. Which is such a great character moment for like, that just helps to build Benoit big time. But also poor a train lost 10 grand on that match. And then Lesnar kicked the shit out of him the next week for uh, 
<laughs> Which is a great bully moment for Brock. He's like, you bet against me, and now I'm going to kick your ass. Yeah. Uh, this match also has, like, that ending part where they're doing the uh, the body bag. There's this little character moment that Tony Marinero does that I just absolutely love. Where, like, he gets on his knees and bends back, just looking up at Disco, like, you're going to die, buddy. <laughs> that is an A-plus character. Like, I... Yeah. I can't believe I think this is the only show I've ever seen that character appear on. What yeah, happened? I don't remember what really happens because I know Vito's around, but Vito ends up being a baby face, and I think they put Johnny the Bull in the natural born thrillers. I don't remember what ends up happening to Tony Mamaluke. That sucks because this group is actually something. Yeah. Uh Chris Benoit comes out with the US title. Cool new entrance for him here. Yeah. Lights go down, new music, trying to get him over. Um, He's won the title by forfeit because Scott Hall is injured and unable to wrestle. Benoit says the title should be won and lost in the ring. He wants to wrestle tonight. He says the fans deserve to see a ladder match, so he issues an open challenge to anyone in the back who wants to face him for the title. Um not the greatest promo. Like just Benoit was not a good talker. He was somebody who really needed somebody to play off. I I have to literally tell you that like we have said many times that Chris Benoit is maybe the worst promo in history right here. Like he's not necessarily later on he would become decent because he would understand himself better. But god damn, he has no idea what the fuck he's talking about during any segment at this point. He, like, has all these weird catchphrases he's trying to get over. And for all the world feels like they're trying to make it seem like he doesn't talk much. But when he talks, he says all this profound shit. And it's, it's embarrassing. He delivers it like he delivers it like he was handed a piece of paper on the way out to the ring, memorized it and is just repeating it. Next up for the cruiserweight title, Evan Courageous defends against Medusa. Cruiserweight cool. division has fallen off a little bit since the days of Ultimo Dragon versus Dean Malenko for nine belts. I mean, let's say this though: is that like in terms of like credible opponents for Evan Courageous on this show, I'm not sure they had a better one than Medusa. Yeah, I don't think Evan Courageous should have been the Cruiserweight champion at this point. Like, I, I think he's more the weak link than Medusa. Oh, God, yes. Evan Courageous fucking sucks. Evan Courageous is just a set of abs and a backwards hat. That That is what that person is. So, they literally found him in a nightclub as a male dancer. In storyline, he was like Medusa's sugar baby, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't know the age gap there, but it seems like it's significant. Let's take a look. Eh, about life. 10 years. Okay. I mean, it looks so like Med- a lot more than that because Medusa's kind of looking like she's been dried out by the sun pretty bad at this point. Medusa was 35 here. Courageous was 27. That's Medusa not- was younger here than I am now. That's fucking crazy because she looks 60 years old. <laughs> That's the thing with women's wrestlers start when they're like 16 and usually retire by the time they're 30. So she yeah. seemed old. Well, also like 
WCW aged people quite a bit with the things that happened there. I'm not hard. Li- hard. These were hard years people were doing in WCW, not because of the road schedule, but because of what they were doing after the shows. Exactly. And I'm not saying that she was necessarily involved with any of that. And I'm not saying that getting the most gigantic implants I've ever seen on a human being ages a woman, but like, yeah. <laughs> So Courageous left Medusa for Spice, who is one of the Nitro girls. I genuinely did not know that a person named Spice existed in this promotion, so I'm going to guess she doesn't stick around very long. Medusa starts with a crossbody off the apron and then proceeds to kick Courageous's ass. Courageous hits her with a big right hand to the jaw, which gets a ton of heat. Yeah, it does. Uh, Courageous with a clothesline from the top rope all the way down to the floor. Courageous gets distracted by Spice. I think she hit him with a low blow here, but it was so poorly performed you could barely tell. Like, it was not so much a low blow as a genuine punch to the dick. <laughs> like, I, you, know, like I, you know I love a good dick punch. It's like nobody smartened her up that's just like, yeah, you just put your arm between their legs and then bring it up and then they catch it with their thighs so that they don't actually get punched. Somebody told her like, yeah, you're going to give him a low blow. And he's, she was like, oh, OK, I'll just punch him in the dick then. How did this compare to the greatest dick punch in wrestling history, which was Roman Reigns on The Fiend? Um, That was a 10 out of 10. This is a one out of 10. Yeah. Because Roman Reigns punched. The fiend's dick so hard he got fired. <laughs> Literally punched him out of the company with one shot to the dick. And for months now, no one has signed him. That's right. He's untouchable because his dick is a disaster. Um, Medusa hits a German suplex for the pin. That gets a big pop. This match was fine. This was entertaining. I think a lot of people still had a lot of fondness for Medusa. Like Medusa had been around a long time. They just WCW had done jack shit with her. I know. Seeing a woman beat a man always gets a pop. Like, intergender wrestling, the woman's always the underdog, and that's because that's the way they've always portrayed it. So even though Medusa was functionally the heel in this match, no one's going to treat it that way. Uh, Medusa and Spice leave together after the match. Shades of China and Miss Kitty, I'd say. Uh, Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Does that stick around Does like, I don't know. The thing is, they go through so many creative change. Like t- the creative team turns over three times in the three months after right. this, so pretty much everything gets scrapped. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was room. As we have discussed, they were trying so hard to create a new China here. Yes, that they they take <laughs> almost th- every match has a China. Yeah, they take three different stabs at it in the same night. So <laughs> this is probably the one that would have worked the best. Because Medusa's probably the only woman on this show who probably should have been wrestling men, because she can, and is as good as them, and is as tall as them. But, I don't know. And then, Mean Gene interviews Norman Smiley, who's in full football pads. Gene asks him if he's frightened of Ming. He says he's not scared, but then he flinches when the producer starts counting down the interview. And after he thinks they've cut, he asks Gene if he shit his pants, and Gene sh- says he did. Norman Smiley is the best character on this program. Yes. What a gem. The fact that Norman Smiley was a British catch-as-catch-can wrestler in Mexico, a legend, came to this company 
mostly to like be an agent and help train people at the power plant and winds up becoming one of the greatest comedic characters in wrestling history. It's such a great story. And this uh, doesn't this predate Crash Holly as hardcore champion? I think I it believe, does. I believe Crash Holly is a direct ripoff of this. Yeah. Which is Norman very Smiley, funny. Norman Smiley was much better. The thing that's so amazing about Norman Smiley is that, like, with Crash Holly, it's fun to watch him be like, oh, I'll whoop your ass and I'm just as tough as you, even though I'm very small and then I'll run away. To have a character be the hardcore champion who is so absolutely petrified of every other human being on Earth is amazing. Yeah. The real irony is Norman Smiley was actually a shoot badass. Oh, Norman Smiley could have caught the leg of anybody in this company. Yeah, let's could be have very clear. any of these guys. He is literally like, they called him like, well, black they magic. called him Black Magic. But he was also called like the spider because of how fucking, like, because he yeah. has all these long gangly limbs. And he would use them to just, like, tie people up in knots. Yeah. Like, Norman Smiley is the type of thing that made me love WCW. Because this guy was basically a jobber for most of his run. But, like, what an incredibly talented wrestler to just come out and put people over on Nitro. Yeah. <clears throat> no matter what segment you were watching on Nitro during its yeah. peak, you were watching one of the greatest wrestlers in the entire world. Yeah. Think of how many guys they had like that. They had him. They had Bobby Eaton, they had Fit Finley, they had Regal. Like, some of the best wrestlers in the world were out there just to put guys over. Oh, yeah, they're bringing over, like, Masahiro Chono to put over Scott Hall in, like, the third match on the card. Uh, so we've got the hardcore title match next. Norman Smiley defending against Ming. Against Ming! Uh, <laughs> Ming chases him back into the catering area, slams him through a table... Norman gets a fire extinguisher and sprays Ming, but he doesn't sell it. Then Fit Finley and Brian Nobbs show up to attack Ming. Finley hits some chair shots, but they can't take Ming down. Nobbs finally hits Ming with a pipe to the back. At this point, Smiley, like, crawls out from under a table, like, keeps checking to make sure Ming is actually out, and then, like, covers him with a finger for the pin and then runs away. Yeah, he holds down one shoulder with a finger and then sprints off into the distance. Brilliant. This, this is, is the yeah, this, this is, is good. One of the, best, one of the best things too is that like with Crash Holly, he's fighting like Al Snow and Hardcore Holly and that's cool. Norman Smiley is feuding with like Terry Funk, Ming, Bam Bam, Bigelow and yeah. Fit Finley. Like the toughest men on the face of the planet. Yeah. Oh man. Um, a couple things happen. David Flair is given the gift of a golden tire iron by an unseen benefactor. Is this before or after he forms that weird stable with a person actually named Crowbar? That hasn't happened yet. Because is, is it that he loves Crowbar so much that he calls so. his buddy Crowbar? Probably. That's my best explanation. Also, in the videos that they're playing for the David Flair thing, they're showing that he's basically become like an insane pervert is that what his gimmick is basically yeah remember um oh no the dna match was after this yeah that was at halloween havoc 2000 so that was a year after this he's just become crazy at this point like he's, he's doing... i think he's wasn't he i think i think this started because ddp was feuding with his dad right so he got roped into that because i think kimberly like tricked him into coming to her hotel room and he thought he was going to get laid and DDP beat him up. Yeah, he does a thing where he's like, 
in their house. And Kimberly like, oh, hey, Paige, and taps him on the shoulder. And he turns around. He's just like, hello, Kimberly. And like, it's some weird shit. Yeah. Though uh, he's actually he's better at playing a serial killer than he is at playing Ric Flair's son. Yeah. He's literally like 20 years old here. No God. business being on TV. No, he doesn't. And there's nothing about him that looks like a wrestler. And normally yeah. I don't harp on that very much. But like, he just literally looks like some guy. He is. He's just Ric Flair's son. Yeah. Who knew that all the genes would go to his daughter? Yeah. Then Oklahoma pumps up Dr. Death. We'll talk about that in a little bit. God. And then there's an interview with janitor Jim Duggan, who will be teaming with mystery partners against the revolution later tonight. Okay. So we have to establish this. Jim Duggan is literally, literally the single janitorial staff working for WCW. Yes. As in, he travels to each arena and cleans all the toilets for all the shows that they do. That's that's canon. That's a thing that's happening. Why? I cannot remember. I mean, I mean, honestly, it, the real reason is very clearly just that they are punishing Jim Duggan for some reason. Yeah. Whether it's just that Vince Russo doesn't like him or what. But in true Jim Duggan fashion, he kind of gets over as the friendly janitor. The thing is, he's just come back from cancer. He was gone for like a year before this with cancer. And then they bring him back. And that's pretty inspiring that he's survived cancer and is back being a professional athlete. And then they just give him this gimmick to fucking bury him. Yeah. What an inspirational story. Now go clean those fucking toilets. <laughs> so the revolution started off as like all the young guys are going to unite and work together and protect each other. But under Russo, they've morphed into like anti-government conspiracy theorists. Yeah. Now they've become like uh, the un-Americans in WWE. It's basically, yeah, basically. the same gimmick, yeah. except not. They get their own Canada. flag and they wave it. And yeah, that kind of stuff. And like, whatever. Removing. Making this this group just be Perry Saturn, Dean Malenko and Shane Douglas buries it. Cause there's not like a scrap of charisma in this group right now. Perry Saturn has been charismatic other times as has Shane not Douglas, but as a group, they fucking suck. So yeah, the revolution Saturn, Malenko, Shane Douglas, and a body build, female bodybuilder that they're calling Asia with a Y. Wow. How subtle. Vince, but also, Vince Russo this, loves him some big muscular women. So it's it's clear that Vince Russo intends for this to be DX, at least to some extent, right? Like Shane Douglas is the Triple H, and oh. Malenko and Saturn are like his outlaws. I mean, Asia is obviously China. I don't know right. if it's that well thought out beyond that. I mean, I don't know, but it's just like it, none none of this works. None of it. Not one single bit. What a waste of everyone involved. Are you ready for the stipulations here? Oh, hit me, hit me, hit me. If Duggan wins, the Revolution have to be the janitors for the next month. If the Revolution win, Duggan has to denounce America. I mean, <laughs> I feel like Duggan's got the better part of that, because while he would never want to denounce America... 
you got to scrub toilets at an arena for a month? No, 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 no. According to The Observer, Duggan was originally going to win, and, like, the revolution talked him out of it. Yeah. Oh, you mean Shane Douglas went in and was like, hey, uh, you're not going to get any fucking footage of me scrubbing out a goddamn toilet. (laughs) That's just not going to happen. How hard did you mark out when Duggan introduced his partners, the Varsity Club? This is such a moment where, like, the, <laughs> the law cast comes full circle. Because I I imagine the people watching at the time, there were maybe, like, seven people watching yeah. at home who had who any are, idea who the, who the fuck they were. Who the fuck is the Varsity Club? Whereas me, at home watching this, was like, whoa, it's my favorites from 1993! <laughs> Kevin Sullivan, Mike Rotundo, and Rick Steiner. How? Mike Rotundo looked great. Mike Rotundo looks like a million dollars. They should have just kept yeah. using him. He looks great. I don't. Steiner is Steiner. Kevin Sullivan's obviously old and kind of dumpy at this point, but that's fine. The debate here is did Kevin Sullivan ask for this or did Vince Russo put him up to it? And I can't decide because I can definitely see Kevin Sullivan wanting to do this, but it's he's burying himself. It's funny. It's just like Jim Cornette in the NWA invasion. Yes. Just like, yeah, let him do what he wants because it's going to make him look like an asshole. (laughs) Um, Douglas is injured, so he doesn't wrestle in the match. He gets on commentary. So it's three on four. It's Saturn. Malenko in Asia against Duggan and the Varsity Club. Duggan works the whole match for his team, which is rather ill-advised. Yeah, I don't know that that's a great idea. Like, maybe I understand that, like, Sullivan and Rotunda don't want to work, but, like, Steiner was just on cards, like, a month ago. It's not like he can't work. Yeah. Well, that would have ruined the twist end in, where the Varsity Club turn on... Duggan for some reason. Oh no, the anti-American varsity club. I don't know why they teamed with Duggan in the first place or why they turned on him. No explanation. I, I do love the idea of somebody being like, you know who I can trust to help me in this pickle? Kevin Sullivan. Yeah. You know who would never betray me? <laughs> the, the man who's betrayed me so many times. Um, backstage, we see Oklahoma getting locked in a shark cage by the Misfits. Not the Misfits in action, different stable. I was so confused about that. Like, who are the Misfits? I was Shannon Moore one of these guys. I think maybe he looked like he was. Yeah, I. Don't know. Not important. I, the Misfits, this is the band, the Misfits. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, so they're just friends with Vampiro. Okay, I got you. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool then, actually. Got I it. guess. It turns out I did not know what the Misfits look like. Next up, we've got Vampiro versus Steve Williams. If Vampiro wins, he gets five minutes with Oklahoma. Oklahoma is Ed Ferrara doing, at this point, it's a toned down parody of Jim Ross. He's no longer like 
you know, contorting his face to mock JR's Bell's palsy. At this point, he's barely even got a southern accent. Explain Oklahoma to me. I tell you what, don't even explain Oklahoma to me, because it's not complicated. Vince Russo just apparently hated Jim Ross and wanted to mock him. And... Which seems weird because you're mocking somebody who is literally universally beloved by everyone, even the people watching this show, universally beloved Jim Ross. I really thought that this Oklahoma shit started like further on into Vince Russo's yeah. tenure. This was like an immediate thing. Yeah, that it was we're like gonna shit on Jim Ross. Like literally, like he and Ed Farrar must have been like driving in the car, like, all right, what are the first things we're gonna do? Well, the first thing I'm gonna do is put you on TV doing your Jim Ross impersonation. <laughs> Which isn't even a good one. It sucks. Lots of people do good Jim Ross imitations. Ed Ferrara, and let me say this. Ed Ferrara sucks in this role because this role sucks and we hate it. I'm not saying that he couldn't have done some other role on screen. He's not like the worst imaginable manager that I've ever seen. I'm sure he could get heat. He generally seems like an unlikable prick. I just don't understand why he has to do this. They wrestle for five minutes, and then Doc gets disqualified for shoving the referee. Allegedly, he refused to do the job out of fear that it would hurt his drawing ability in Japan. Love that. (laughs) Which, by the way, he was pretty much at the end of his run in Japan anyway. Um, So, Vampiro gets five minutes with Oklahoma. They let Oklahoma out of the shark cage. I did enjoy that we could hear him doing commentary during his match. He gets in the ring, throws a really good kick, and then hits a nice DDT. At this point, I remember, Ed Ferrara actually has some wrestling training. Really? Yeah, Ferrara, I don't know whether it was just that he was, like, training to be a wrestler before he, like, got into writing, or if, like, part of him, like, working in creative was that he did, like, some training, but... I definitely remember hearing that he was trained. I mean, may, I don't think fully trained, but he at least like worked out some in the ring. I mean, that makes sense because he looked when, good here for the little bit he did. Yeah, when people are like shoving him on his ass and stuff, he's taking like flat back bumps. He clearly knows what to do, which makes him a huge leg up on when Vince Russo himself was getting involved in physical. Vampiro recovers, hits a Uranagi, and then the Mishinoku driver to get the pin. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the idea of Steve Williams and the idea of Vampiro are both good ideas. There's nothing here worth salvaging. Oil and water. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike Tanay interviews Harlem Heat. He asks if there's friction between them. Booker denies that there is, but then Stevie says things were fine until he brought in Midnight And he says he's not wrestling with Booker tonight. So we're going to have a handicap match. It's Creative Control and Kurt Hennig against Booker T and Midnight. Creative Control are the Harris twins. um, Teaming with Kurt Hennig and accompanied by Vincent. I think Vincent is going by Shane at this point. Because, you know, before he was Vincent to make fun of Vince McMahon. And now he's Shane to make fun of Shane McMahon. And... Creative control are called Gerald and Patrick. Now, first of all, wouldn't it have been a lot funnier if he had had to go by Stephanie instead? I guess. Yeah, sure. Um, But also, this is nothing. Creative control is a nightmare. 
Like, why? Yeah, they're, the, they're the enforcers for the unseen powers that be. There's something about the fact that the Harris brothers are genuine white supremacists and them being creative control, which just made yes. me feel extremely uncomfortable throughout this entire match. Um, Midnight is a female bodybuilder. She looks great. Clearly, like, doesn't have a lot of training, but again, they're just desperately searching for their China. Yes. I mean, she does look great. I, I would honestly say that of all of the China options that were on this show, coming out of this, I would say, like, you know what? There might be something there. Let's kind of run with it. At least keep her with Booker T and just see if that could be, like, a thing. I Again, that's another name that I swear I've never heard mentioned again after this. Um... Midnight gets worked over for a while, then Booker gets a hot tag. He hits a spine buster. Kurt Hennig breaks up the pin with a shot with a foreign object, and that's enough for Booker to get pinned. Midnight was distracted arguing with Stevie, who had just shown up. Not long after this, Ahmed Johnson will be brought in by Stevie Ray as Big T and will feud with Booker T over the letter T. Cool. Uh, I just looked it up. Midnight literally appeared on Sold Out and then left the company immediately after that. Yeah. So, cool. She got her real estate license. That's nice. One can only speculate why she left. I mean, I wouldn't want to stay. If I had any other option, I wouldn't want to stay on this fucking sinking ship of a company either. Oh, they show a recap of Dustin Rhodes debuting as Seven a few weeks ago. I am obsessed with this. Yes. Um, So they ran all these vignettes hyping the character of Seven, who is Dustin Rhodes in a black trench coat and white makeup, like looking like an albino. And he'd be like, outside like a kid's window like whispering evil stuff to him like it's a legitimately scary character too scary for wcw standards and practices it turned out well yeah i mean if you're gonna if you're gonna do a character like this i'm not sure sitting outside of a child's window looking like a pedophile is the right way to go about it yeah I, had they not done that part, I think they could have gotten away with this. But that was a bridge too far. Um, Which is a shame, because I feel like this is the kind of character Dustin really wanted to play. Like, I think he always wanted to take Gold Dust to, like, a much darker place yeah. and just couldn't get anyone to let him go there. Like Black Rain? Yeah. <laughs> How fucking dare you? Black Rain and Relic are both on this show. How dare you invoke that? <laughs> Um, so what they had him do is he made his debut where it, this was awesome. He floated to the ring on wires. Yes. And then he gets in the ring and he's like, isn't this the biggest load of crap you've ever seen? And he proceeds to cut a promo, like ripping on gimmicks and being like, no more gimmicks from now on. You'll never forget the name of Dustin Rhodes. And he became the American nightmare. That is such a bummer. Yeah. Because that entrance actually is super cool. <laughs> yeah. So, like, people at home are sitting there like, whoa, this new character is super awesome. Look at this cool entrance. And then he's like, you guys are fucking idiots. Yeah. This is dumb. That's the thing. He like, just tells you you're an idiot for liking this character Jesus. and thinking this is cool. 
And like I understand if standards and practices said they had to put the kibosh on it, but you don't have to like I would tell have people just dropped, they were I idiots. Just quiet, I would have just quietly dropped the character and then Adam yes. debuts Dustin Rhodes. But instead they worked a storyline. He comes into conflict with Jeff Jarrett because the bookers tried to give him this bad gimmick and Jeff Jarrett is the booker's favorite. Jesus Christ. Yes. Like of all the reasons for Jeff Jarrett to feud with Dustin Rhodes, you don't really need much of one. It seems like those characters would naturally not like each other. And also that seems like the most obvious mid card match that you could possibly put on. So just fucking do it. This whole asinine Booker story. I'm sure Jared's dad stiffed Dusty and Dustin on pay at some point, so they could have just used that as the basis for the storyline. I am amazed that Jeff Jarrett's entire in-ring career was not just a series of people coming out and interrupting his promos, being like, your dad stiffed me out of $2,000 in Memphis in 1986. Give me that money, boy. I mean, that was why Steve Austin did the Fargo strut on top of his corpse. That is the best. Hey, you want to be in a segment with me, Jeff? Fine. I'm going to whoop your ass into the Fargo strut. End of segment. <sighs> Shouldn't have called him a blasphemer. Oh, boy. Uh, Mike Tanay interviews Dustin until Jared attacks him, and we've got the bunkhouse brawl between Jeff Jared and Dustin Rhodes. Kyush, what's a what is a bunkhouse brawl? Well, Steve, uh... Sometimes out on the prairie, men will be staying together in these houses called bunk houses. They'd be lots of men, lots of, lots of manly men staying in one room together for months on end. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they would come into conflict with one another and they need to go outside to settle that. So they go outside and in their jeans and their overalls and their shirts and their scarves and their hats and their boots and their socks and they would and they would have to fight it out in a bunkhouse match. Did that help? That helped. Okay. Some, good. Someday you and I will settle our differences in a bunkhouse brawl. You're goddamn right, and we'll put it on the the podcast so you can only hear it. <laughs> oh man, lots of <laughs> weapon shots as they're fighting around ringside. Dustin throws powder in Jarrett's eyes and whips him with a belt. He whips the referee and then gets duct tape and tapes him to the ropes and tapes his mouth shut. That kicks ass. That actually was cool. Yeah, I like uh, that. Jar- Jarrett hits a low blow as Kurt Hennig comes down to the ring. Uh, Jarrett smashes a board on Dustin's head and then puts him in a sleeper. Dustin comes back with a power slam, but Hennig breaks the pin up. Dustin hits shattered dreams on Jarrett, but Hennig pulls the ref out of the ring. Rhodes then does shattered dreams on Hennig. Hennig recovers. They fight up the aisle. Hennig distracts Rhodes for long enough that Jarrett hits him with El Cabong and gets the pin. This was actually pretty good. I could, I, I, this was watchable. Yeah, this wasn't rough. I mean... For all the shit that we talk about Jeff Jarrett, and it's all 100% deserved, like, he he doesn't have bad matches. He can have boring matches, but his matches have a certain level of competency that you don't see elsewhere necessarily during WCW at this time. Yeah. 
at least you can enjoy them once you forget that it's Jeff Jarrett that you're watching. These are two guys that, I mean, the only time Dustin ever had bad matches was when he was just like out of his mind on drugs. Like yeah. generally these two guys don't have bad matches. Even Black Rain didn't have bad yeah. matches. He just had short, boring matches. Next up, we've got a crowbar on a pole match. Yeah. Diamond Dallas Page and David Flair. Hook it to my veins. Flair jumps Page before the match and hits him with a crowbar. David Penzer starts to announce Flair is the winner, but DDP stops him and says he wants to compete. Um, You win by pinfall or submission here. It's just if you get the crowbar off the pole, you get to use it. Um, Let me recontextualize what you just said, because what you just said is that there just happens to be a crowbar on a pole that you can use if you feel like it. But also the match begins with David Flair assaulting him with a crowbar. So he already has one. Yep. Different crowbar. So like, what the fuck? Is that a magic crowbar hung up on the pole? What the fuck's the point of the pole? Flair... Gets the figure four. Page manages to turn it over. Flair goes up and gets the crowbar, but Page ducks it, hits him with the diamond cutter, and pins him in three minutes. Thank God they cut this short. Jesus. Like, as much as David Flair is not a good personality, he's an even worse pro wrestler. Like, this is... Everything he ever does in a ring is just brutal. After the match, Page hits a second diamond cutter... And then he goes to hit Flair with the crowbar. Daphne, who's making her debut, runs in to protect him. Yay, Daphne, yay! Yeah, Daphne was great. So was Crowbar. Honestly, that's not a bad little segment. They were held back by the fact that David Flair sucks. But, like, how much better would it have made it if, like, David Flair had also gone, like, super goth? Because he stays in his, like, North Carolina... Typical, like, white boy cop aesthetic all the way through that whole thing. And I really would have liked him to just, like, dye his hair black and get some yeah. piercings and eyeliner. Yeah, for Ric Flair to be like, what are you doing? That would have required actually committing to this character. Which he very much does not. Then they do a promo for Sting versus Lex Luger. Luger has been mistreating Elizabeth and Sting is coming to her rescue. They do a promo before the match where, like, Liz has a can of mace to protect herself. And Sting is like, oh, no, take this one. This is the good stuff. Make a note of that. Yeah. Um, Sting and Luger fight for a couple minutes. Liz pulls out the mace. She goes to spray Sting. But it turns out Sting gave her silly, silly string because he knew she was going to turn on him. What an unbelievable character moment for Sting, who not not only for the first time in his entire life has not been fooled by someone else, but actually like made a plan and it worked. What a what a what a kingly moment for that man. Scott Hall or Scott Hudson even points this out on commentary where he's like Sting didn't get fooled for once. I do love that St- the idea that Sting gets fooled by everyone all the time except by Lex Luger. He's the only one who doesn't get fooled by Lex Luger. <laughs> see through him, yeah. I know you too well, brother. Sting hits a splash from the top rope. Luger kicks out at two. Sting hits the Stinger splash. 
He sets up for the scorpion, but Liz gets in the ring with the bat. She drops the bat. Sting goes to reapply the hold, and then Liz blasts him in the face with the bat. Yeah, here's Didn't the look problem. like she pulled that. No, here's the problem is that Sting successfully figures out the plot, takes it down. Great job. Good good work, Sting. Problem is, his big plan to get rid of the situation is just to tell Liz to go sit in the corner, and then he turns his back to her with the bat sitting right there. Not the best plan you've ever come up with, buddy. Luger gets the pin. After the match, Liz gets a chair, and Luger pilmanizes Sting's arm with it. So this writes Sting out for a while. I mean, this was... I'm not going to say it was a great match or anything, but, like, it was a series of really good character moments. Like, I I really, I enjoyed the idea of this. I enjoyed Sting finally not being a sucker. (laughs) There was good stuff here. Next up, we've got the powerbomb match between Kevin Nash and Sid Vicious. You can only win by hitting your opponent with a powerbomb. Why? Like, I've never really been into the finisher, like, match stipulation. Let me get pitch you an alternate version of this, okay? You tell me what you think about it. You put 10 minutes on the clock. <laughs> you surround the ring with cruiserweights. And it's who uh, can perform the most power bombs in 10 minutes. <laughs> I, I love this. The cruiserweights have to run, but they can't jump the rail and they can't go backstage. And it's just a matter of... <laughs> Who can powerbomb the most cruiserweights in 10 minutes? Maybe powerbombing them two and three at a time. Hell yeah, stack them up like cornwood, baby. Um, Sid goes for a powerbomb early. Nash headbutts him in the dick. Yeah. Nash tries for the jackknife on the floor, but Sid slips out. They brawl. The ref gets bumped. Sid nearly kills Nash with a powerbomb. Like, he can't get him up, and then he just kind of dead weights him and just barely manages to get him over. Nearly dropped him right on his head. And whereas most times when things like that happen, it's pretty egregious on the person doing the powerbomb, Sid literally, you can see him exert every ounce of strength he has trying to save Nash's life here. I mean... Kevin Nash is a big dude to have to do a powerbomb on. It didn't look like he did much to get up here. Yeah, and Sid's a big guy, but Nash has got like four or five inches on him. So, like, the more just length that a person has, the harder it is to do moves like this because he just can't clear them, like, good enough. It's crazy. The ref, of course, is down, so he didn't see the powerbomb. Jeff Jarrett shows up. He Uh. hits Sid with a guitar. Nash tries to powerbomb Sid, but his back is too hurt. The referee wakes up. (laughs) Nash tells the referee he powerbombed Sid, and the referee believes him and calls for the bell and awards the match to Nash. What the fuck? The most whack finish to a match I've ever seen. How can the referee just be like, okay, I believe you? Just imagine that. Oh, sure. You're, the word of Kevin Nash is good to me. <laughs> he literally just goes over, and he doesn't even try to convince the ref. He just does the international symbol for, I just did a powerbomb, and the ref's just like, oh, cool, he did it. All right, well, let, let's good. go. 
Well, let's go home. What a bastardization of what should have been the match of a lifetime for you and I. Like, only like a powerbomb versus ankle lock, shamrock versus Sid match could possibly earn a space in our heart more than this one. And what a disappointment overall. Next up, we've got a ladder match for the U.S. title. It's Chris Benoit versus Jeff Jarrett. This is one of the only ladder matches I ever remember in WCW. They only did a few. Well, there's a really good reason why you don't do ladder matches in WCW, and that's because the ring is less (laughs) wide than the ladder is tall. Like, it's not a a good idea. Any Uh, bump you're going to take off this ladder is going to be to the outside. (laughs) Early on, Jarrett kicks the ladder into Benoit's face and splits his eyebrow open. Um, Jarrett gets Benoit's legs caught in the ladder and then tips the ladder over. Benoit gets Jarrett in the tree of woe in the ladder. He tries to climb, but Jarrett manages to tip the ladder over while hanging upside down. Um, They both climb the ladder. They have a slugfest. Jarrett wins, but Benoit tips the ladder over. Benoit climbs, Jarrett knocks the ladder over and sends Benoit into the top rope. Jarrett climbs it, Benoit pushes the ladder over, crotches him on the top rope. Benoit goes to the top, Jarrett missile drop kicks the ladder out from under him. I always love that spot. What a fucking cool spot that was. Yeah. Uh, Benoit kicks the ladder into Jarrett's face. Benoit climbs the ladder. He's got the belt in his hands. He's standing tippy top of the ladder like Jeff Hardy. Instead of just grabbing the belt, he does the diving headbutt off the ladder. Kids do not ever do that. Oh. Rice, this is a bad idea. And again, like the margin for error here, error here is so oh. much smaller because of how small the fucking ring is. Like it's it's easily a- could have hit the top rope. Ooh. Uh, ugh. Did not like watching that. He goes up, climbs the ladder, grabs the belt, and wins. Great match. Got to give credit to Jeff Jarrett. Like, worked twice here and put on a show here. I mean, you really do have to give credit. Like, nobody on this show is a patch on Jeff Jarrett in terms of, like, he holds down two different segments on this terrible, terrible show, and both of those matches don't suck. Got to give it up for him. Jared busted his ass in this WCW run. Have you heard the terms of his contract? The one where, like, he got, like, crazy extra money for doing house shows? Or Every house like show he worked, he got, like, 3500 bucks. God. that And, like, so, like, in, in a time where none of the other main eventers wanted to do any house shows, you were basically guaranteed Jared to be at your show because oh, he's yeah. going to make a shitload of money. Oh yeah, he was working every. He was working as many. I mean, they didn't run that many shows. We were. I think they cut their house shows back at this point. But yeah, he was working every night. And bless him for that. Like, I'm glad that they did something like that because again, this is the point where like all of the stars who would have been on top in house shows either aren't going to do them or aren't there anymore. Yeah. Uh, they showed the video package for the main event. Today interviews Bret Hart. He says he'll silence his doubters tonight by beating Goldberg, and then he heads to the ring. Michael Buffer is here to do the introductions. Um, Bret is out first. No leather jacket or sunglasses. I think he looks a little plain without him. Though that belt sure does look good on him. Yeah, uh, big gold belt. What a beautiful, beautiful title. Yeah, it looks great, and 
Like I, I don't even hate his music here. Like I, I thought that I was. Yeah, gonna hate they actually more. came up with a decent entrance theme for him. It's not bad. Uh, big reaction for Goldberg, although I suspect it's piped in based on the crowd reactions during the match. I mean, it has to be, right? <laughs> he splits his head open, headbutting the locker room door. What an idiot. That like, is so, is he so stupid. To at this point, honestly. <sighs> this if only, is, if only that were the worst head injury anyone suffered in this match. Yeah. What is where is this on the scale of um, him punching the window? The happens car window? Few, that happens a few weeks after this. Like I, it's to the point where you almost think like, is he trying to like injure his way out of the company so he doesn't have to be here anymore? Mick Foley. Yeah. Um, Brett keeps his back turned during Goldberg's entrance to avoid getting psyched out. That is a great little Bret Hart touch. I did love that. He's still Bret Hart. Even if he's reduced Bret Hart, he's still bringing the magic. God, I wish we could have got prime Bret versus Goldberg. Sounds like it would be an unbelievable match. I mean, we never really got to see Bret wrestle like a lot of hosses like that. You know, now, him and Diesel. I loved him and Diesel together. Yeah, him and Taker, him and Sid. Those were all good. Him and Yoko was very good. But to see somebody who was, like, big and strong Explosive. but could also go, yeah. yeah. We never really saw that. The things he could have thought to do with somebody like that. Uh, Goldberg overpowers Brett, hits him with just a brutal press slam. First of many ugly things that happen in this match. I, I don't know where it happens. Early in the match, uh, Goldberg hits Brett with a punch that, according to Brett, was like, the first thing that had his ears ringing. Like, I don't know what got into Goldberg here. Like he tended to work stiff, but this was just on another level. Like there's just something going on with Goldberg during this period. And it's hard to say what it is exactly. Maybe it's just frustration because he can tell that he's losing the fans and that the company's going down or whatever it is, but he's just on edge. It seems like uh, Goldberg gets Brett in an ankle lock. Brett, like, great finds his legs and goes to put on the sharpshooter, but Goldberg powers out of it. They go to the floor. Goldberg drops Brett across the railing. Ref gets bumped. They go back to the ring. Goldberg hits a suplex. That knocks down <coughs> Charles Robinson, who had taken over as referee. Ref bump count two. Goldberg goes for a spear, but Brett moves. He hits the post. Brett goes to do the figure four along, along the ring po- around the ring post. Now, the trick to this move is the guy getting the hold put on him has to grab Brett's foot. Otherwise, Brett is unprotected and just drops down and cracks his head on the floor, which is what happens here because Goldberg doesn't grab his foot. <sighs> and these WCW mats on the floor are thin. These things are like maybe an inch thick. Like, you could honestly say that Bret Hart got, like, four different concussions in this match. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just one thing that happens here. A bunch of things happen here. And literally all of them are Goldberg doing a bad job. Like, there's nothing else you can really say about it. Uh, Back in the ring, Bret works on Goldberg's legs, gets him in the figure four. Bret turns it over. Goldberg's gets the ropes. At this point, there's a loud Goldberg sucks chant. Which, even if you didn't initially think that Goldberg sucks, in this match so far, he has sucked very badly. 
It's but also if, just that not he's not explosive in this match in the right ways either. He's just not fun to watch. They fight in the corner. There's yet another ref bump. That's yeah. number three. Why? I don't. Like, what? I guess it's to set up Roddy Piper coming out because they ran out of referees, so Piper had to take over. I don't I know. Mean, I mean, I guess. At this point, Brett comes off the ropes and Goldberg hits him with the kick that scrambled his brain. This is one of the most brutal things. <laughs> of all the things we've ever watched in wrestling, you literally just watch him mule kick backwards. And the thing about a mule oh. kick is that you can't see where you're kicking when you fucking do it. And you just see it hit Brett like right in his fucking temple. It's brutal. Yeah. Brett just goes down like a ton of bricks. He's out. The fact that he's able to do anything for the rest of the night is a testament to his toughness or stupidity or whatever oh. it is. Like, it's he should not be doing anything now. Right after this, he has to take the spear. Yep. At this point, a very dejected-looking Roddy Piper comes down the aisle. He's got his arm in a brace because I think he had just torn his bicep recently. He looks like he does not give two shits about being here. And I don't know if that's actual Roddy or character Roddy. A little bit of both, probably. Jeez. Brett clips Goldberg's knee, locks him in the sharpshooter, and Piper immediately calls for the bell and leaves with the belt. Christ. Okay, so we're redoing the Montreal screw job here. But it, with the screw job, at least... At least you understand what somebody was trying to get out of that. Like, to do a fake screw job and make it so that no one understands any of the motivations of any of the people involved. That's like, the thing. Like, it's one thing when they redid this at Survivor Series 98, where Vince turned on mankind and joined up with The Rock. Like, that made a lot of sense. Yeah, then Here, it's just like, oh, he did it again, that son of a bitch. Yeah. Here, like... We don't know why Piper did this. I don't think we ever really find out because the storyline just sort of gets dropped. Piper just says, like, they made me do it. I mean, I you can kind of put the pieces together. Um, the, the next night, Hart is revealed to be in league with the Outsiders and Jeff Jarrett. So they reform the NWO. It turns out that's Russo's big idea that everything has been leading to is... Yet another reunion of the NWO. Fuck me. With Bret Hart and Jeff Jarrett in it, which is the least cool thing yeah. I can imagine. The world needs more black jeans, apparently. Yeah, let's... What if we did the NWO, but it was like all of your dad's buddies? <laughs> and then they put the Harris brothers in there. Cool. Now it's a white supremacist cult. <laughs> yeah. what, it, what it was always meant to be. I don't know, man. It, it, it's fucking... It's a stupid-ass idea. The NWO should not come back at all. It's a dead oh, brand. Like, there's Christ nothing left no. there. Like, if you want to do a stable, then do a fucking stable. Just make a stable. Make it something other than the NWO. But, like... And if you're going to turn someone heel, don't turn the man heel who just came back because his beloved brother, yes. who the whole industry loves, just died. That's not the plan. Just spit in the fans' faces. I just... 
it's unthinkable on so many levels. Oh, man. I really do think that they would have gotten some mileage out of just turning Goldberg heel. Yeah. Fans clearly wanted it at this point. And you don't have to do it in some sloppy screwjob bullshit. Have him and Brett have a, a real match and then just have Goldberg cheat to win it. Yeah. Have him kick Brett in the dick. Yeah, have Brett like be whooping his ass, get him in the sc- the sharpshooter, and then he just uppercuts him in the balls and hits him with the spear. People yeah. would be ready to boo him on the slightest provocation. And then you could have like Benoit chase heel Goldberg, Brett Hart chase heel, heel Goldberg, Vampiro chase heel Goldberg. Like there's a lot of fresh matchups that way. Yeah. Instead, we get Jeff Jarrett world. Yeah. And. Things get worse from there as Goldberg injures himself smashing the windows of a limo, like cuts himself so bad on the glass he nearly bleeds to death. All right, let's be fair. Okay, let's actually present what Vince Russo's vision actually was, because he's explained this before. His vision was to create a new NWO because Goldberg has had no one to really fight through, which is yeah. why he thought that he wasn't over anymore. So okay, give sure. Goldberg a new promote, a new stable to run through for the next six months. And then at like Bash at the Beach, he finally gets to heart and gets his revenge. I guess. I mean, that's a, uh, that's at least a coherent wrestling yeah. storyline. We can't say it's for no reason that he does this. It's just that Bret Hart is immediately gone and then so is Goldberg. So fuck that idea. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So Brett has his con- Brett's concussion in- issues are further aggravated as they have him wrestling in like hardcore matches and getting hit with chairs and trash cans when he has a bunch of concussions. Love so that. this ends up ending his career. Um, Goldberg gets injured and then uh, Jeff Jarrett gets a concussion, too. And on the next pay-per-view, Jarrett and Benoit were supposed to work three matches against each other, so they couldn't do that anymore. So the whole card was blown up, and it ended with Russo proposing they put the belt on Tank Abbott, and that's what got him fired. Though, I can almost understand his desperation at that moment, because we always have kind of framed it as, like, dumbass Russo always trying to push these weirdos. But when you look up and down this card, man... If you've got to produce a main eventer from Sid. scratch, Just like put the belt on Sid. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Might as well you Well, that's what I would have done. I would have had Sid win the tournament. I would have had Sid hold the belt for like a year. I would have like just had Sid murder people and then build build like the one true baby face, whoever that is. And I would have chosen Booker T. We all know that. Yeah. And that's what you're building to. I that's just me. That's me personally. That's not necessarily what they should have done, but that's what I would have done. Yeah. So, yeah, this is how a company dies, just like this. And that's the thing. For as shitty as this show is, and as there should have been so much more of an uproar about how absolutely horrifyingly destructive this main event was, this is maybe the worst way a show has ever ended in wrestling history. Pretty bad. And there's no uproar because nobody cares anymore. This company's dead. Yeah. 
sad as it is, this is more or less the end. And next week we're going to cover the real funeral because it's the final Starcade, Starcade 2000, um, <laughs> a show I've never seen, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. The only one of the few I've seen most WCW shows, but there's a few from the end there that I've never watched. We may have to do like a season covering them at some point. This is interesting because this is literally the first time in Lawcast history that I have seen a show and oh, Steve wow. hasn't. I covered did you do this, this for Q's reviews. reviews? Yeah. yeah, I did. Yeah, so this will be interesting. We'll see how it goes. The main event is uh, Sid versus Scott Steiner. And I'm trying to think of what else is on the show. There's a ladder match with like three count and the Young Dragons. Yep, and uh, Goldberg versus Luger in a Goldberg Leaves Town match. We wish. We wish yeah. he would leave town. The, the Harris Brothers versus the Filthy Animals. Mike Awesome versus Bam Bam Bigelow in an Ooh, ambulance that's match. That's actually cool. Terry Funk versus Crowbar. That's weird. Lance Storm versus Ernest the Cat Miller. God. It's got General Erection. This, it has all the great... It has all the greatest hits of late stage WCW. All the big stars of 2000 WCW. <laughs> I don't even know if that one broke 100,000 buys. We'll have to see. Probably not, but I can tell you that the attendance is... Well, I don't want to spoil it, but it's not what it was here. Nope. Yeah. Oh, man. All that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.